Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Randy, it's Luke. Hey, what's up, man? Question. In 1991, who was your celebrity crush? Oh, man. Oh, you know what? 91 was probably Elizabeth Shue, because that's when I was getting into Karate Kid. Elizabeth Shue. That's a good answer, man. Are you a Cobra Kai fan? Have you been watching Cobra Kai? You know what? I need to. I haven't watched it yet. You really, really do. And if you are remotely nostalgic about Karate Kid... They've done a perfect job. And Elizabeth Shue apparently comes back in season three. So Come on. Yep. Mine was obviously Danica McKellar. Oh, we could, yeah. But then also Nicole Eggert from Charles in Charge. Yeah. Anyway. You know what's funny? If you go back and watch Charles in Charge, the first season, it's a completely different family. Oh, really? Yes. So apparently, like, they wrote it and that family was there. Then everybody liked Scott Baio. But then... They literally just, in the the first episode of the second season, they had that family move out and another family move in. And they were like, well, we'll just keep you honest. <laughs> That's amazing. It's unfortunate who yeah. Scott Baio is today. Was he the guy wearing the, the bullhorn that stormed the Capitol? <laughs> I think he might have been. I think he might have been. Uh, I hope the police find him. That's good. All right. Well, hey, let's catch up soon. Yeah, buddy. Hey. Hope this is a, the best episode of 30 Pops yet. It honestly might be. It's a really good episode. Good. All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, homie. Let's see you. See you. From No You Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is season three, episode two Plot Points and Party People. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, January 12th, 1991. Hello, friends, and welcome, as always, to 30 Pop and another opportunity to stop, rewind, and play back our most nostalgic moments from exactly 30 years ago. It's truly a joy to have you with me. Much like 2021, 1991 wasted no time getting the drama started, especially on Capitol Hill where in the past week we've witnessed Congress face civil unrest and somehow somewhat still come together in the name of democracy. Thirty years ago this week, Congress came together for another purpose. On January 10, 1991, the U.S. Congress began debating the Persian Gulf crisis. The very next day, on January 11th, they empowered President George H.W. Bush to order an attack on Iraq. And the very next day, on January 12th, Congress gave Bush the authority to wage war against Iraq, which would, within a week, result in the escalation of Operation Desert Shield to Operation Desert Storm. There was plenty of drama in the sports world as well, where on January 9th, baseball legend Pete Rose was officially banned from ever being voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And on the very same day, the greatest basketball player in the history of the world, objectively speaking, Michael Jordan scored his 15,000th career point in the Chicago Bulls' 107-99 victory over the Philadelphia 76ers, a game in which Jordan scored an impressive 40 points. 
This was Jordan's 460th NBA game, making him the second fastest player to ever reach the 15,000-point landmark, behind Wilt Chamberlain, who did it in only 358 games. In music news, on January 8, 1991, tragically, Steve Clark, the lead guitarist and principal songwriter for British rock band Def Leppard, lost his life to alcoholism at only 30 years old. He was, at the time, on a six-month leave of absence from the band for the sole purpose of, if I'm not mistaken, receiving treatment for his long-standing alcohol addiction. Very sad. In happier news, we had new songs at the top of a couple of our Billboard charts, although not the Hot 100, where Madonna's Justify My Love continued at number one, or on the Hot R&B and Hip Hop charts, which saw Freddie Jackson's Love Me Down in the top spot once again. The number one song on the Hot Country chart this week in 1991 was the Garth Brooks single, Unanswered Prayers. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. And just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayer. This was Brooks's second single off his massive 1990 album, No Fences, which has sold to date nearly 19 million copies worldwide. Unbelievable, but true. The number one song on the Hot Rap chart this week in 1991 for the first of four straight weeks was LL Cool J's Around the Way Girl. I loved this song, and in so many ways, it really put LL Cool J on my radar. I knew who he was, of course, but this was the first song he released that felt really accessible to me as an 11-year-old. Not that it was necessarily relevant in any way, as I had no idea what an around-the-way girl was prior to his detailed description in the lyrics of this song, but it just had a certain pop sensibility that made it feel safer than his normal persona, but still true to the old-school hip-hop with which I was enamored. It wasn't MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice dance rap, but it also wasn't NWA or Public Enemy. It was just right, and it paved the way nicely for his next and quite possibly his most famous single, which we'll talk about in March of this year. As expected, the number one album in the country this week in 1991 was, once again, Vanilla Ice's To The Extreme. And the number one film at the box office was, once again, Home Alone, which we've covered in great detail over the course of the last couple months, but about which I'm still not tired of talking. This week, though, it was a bit less impressive being the top film in the country than it was during the December blockbuster season. There was very little competition in theaters 30 years ago this week. That's not to say there was none, or that the films that were releasing were necessarily bad, but they certainly didn't have the same appeal as the John Hughes, Chris Columbus masterpiece that is Home Alone. For example, one of the films that opened in theaters this week in 1991 was, well, this. Ski School. It's not about learning how to ski. For Dave Marshall and his gang, life is one big party. Welcome to my kingdom. I will bed you all before the night is through. They're the best at what they do. I've been watching you ski. 
You're really good. <laughs> May I present to you Section 8? But the competition is fierce. It's dead. I control this mountain. And I say this is your last year. With their backs against the wall, they'll do anything to win. Do you want to have sex with me? Okay. Let's get naked! They've got style. Let the games begin! Class! Was there something about your wigwam? Oh! And the perfect secret weapon. Who is she? Where does she come from? You really care? Oh my god. If they don't win, they'll lose the mountain forever. Scum. Let's settle this once and for all. The best against the best, what do you say? Sure. And we ski the dome. So for the wildest, most outrageous ride of your life, check into Ski School. Anyone for a hot tub? I love my life. Ski School. It's not about learning how to ski. Did, did we win? I'm sure literally dozens of people saw this in theaters across the country, but they likely didn't have the best of taste or the highest of expectations as the opening credits began. They may have had a laugh or two, but I'm confident there aren't many folks, outside of maybe the cast, who still give this an annual viewing 30 years later. Next up, what was almost certainly a far superior film in every way, although maybe a little heavy for the first full week of a new year, Sally Fields in Not Without My Daughter. Daddy's lap. Well, it's my turn. You always said I'm Don't fight over me, girls. You know, I was born in Prussia. Well, they call it Iran now. Moody, it scares me. All I want to do is go for two weeks with you and Martov and visit my family. In 1984, Betty Mahmoudi's husband took her and her daughter to Iran to meet his family. It's all changed. He swore they would be safe. I know it's a different culture. I just don't understand it. He swore they would be happy. He swore they'd be coming home soon. Sweetheart, you haven't packed anything. You want me to do it for you? No. He lied. I don't know how to say this to you. We're not going back. We're staying here. I want us to live in Iran. Are you crazy? We're Americans. Your daughter's an American. I know it's the right decision if you just give it a chance. No, I won't stay here. You can't leave me. Are you listening? You're in my country now. You're my wife. You do as I say, you understand me? If you marry an Iranian man, you automatically become an Iranian citizen. I've told you before, you don't touch the phone and you don't leave the house. The laws regarding women are very strict. It is your duty to tell your husband everything. You cannot have secrets. You have no rights to the children. I'll be with you. I'll help you. If they catch you trying to escape with your daughter, they could execute you. There are three principal ways out of Iran. I promise you I won't leave you. You'll never see Martov again, do you understand me? Dear Lord, hear our prayer. Please help us leave Iran and get back to America. Please let nothing separate us. And keep us always safe in your care. We must go now. Metro Goldwyn Mayer proudly presents Academy Award winner Sally Field in the terrifying true story of a mother and her daughter whose only crime was being American. I love my baby! 
Not without my daughter. Again, I'm sure this is a really excellent film, but it for sure did not appeal to my 11-year-old self, and so it carries with it no nostalgia today, for me at least. So we'll press on. The last new release from this week in 91 absolutely appealed to me as an 11-year-old, but I likely didn't see it till years later. Another film from martial artist Jean-Claude Van Damme, Lionheart. (laughs) They think they can get away with murder. This is gasoline. But they didn't count on one thing. Does he have any other relatives? Anyone else that could possibly help? Who gave up your family when you joined the Legion? I never give up my family. He's trained to fight for his life. Now... He's fighting for revenge. Just tell him Joshua's here with somebody I think she'd like to meet. Sure you want to mess up that face, Hansel? They think it's a game. Hey, I got three to one against Lionheart. He's playing for keeps. But now, he's facing the ultimate challenge. That's him, a born killer. Not some bum we picked off the street. Well, this dude's already bad, they ain't bodies. I'll beat the guy, I have to. <laughs> the rules are simple. There's no rules. <laughs> the stakes are high. What I did tonight, I did for my family. You win. You live. Now what's it gonna be? You lose. You die. It's going to be simple. Van Damme is... Lionheart. Now, I say another film from Jean-Claude because as it stands, we're still less than two full years into this show, and this is already the fourth Van Damme movie we've covered, with at least one more to go in 91. His star was very much on the rise at this point. I'm sure as a direct result of his breakout performance in 1988's Bloodsport. His acting credits prior to Bloodsport included classic roles such as moviegoer slash man in garden, uncredited, spectator in first dance sequence, uncredited, soldier, uncredited, gay karate man, credited but misspelled, and Ivan Krasinski the Russian in 1986's No Retreat, No Surrender, which I have actually seen. Beginning with Bloodsport, though, Van Damme had a string of blockbuster films playing nearly indistinguishable roles that lasted a solid decade, and I was absolutely helping to fund that machine throughout my early teenage years. To get a better feel for the specifics of Lionheart, however, I decided to turn to one of my newfound favorite features of IMDb.com. Mom, that's the Internet Movie Database. About halfway down the page of any film listing on IMDb, you'll find an easily and oft-overlooked section called Plot Keywords. If you ever find yourself especially bored or sad or in need of a good laugh, I recommend spending some time there. You can learn so much about a movie there. In the case of Lionheart, there are a total of 260 plot keywords on IMDb. All of them clickable, by the way, in case you're looking for a movie to watch featuring very specific plot points. Things like New York City, World Trade Center, Bone Breaking, Lion, Male Underwear, Character Name as Title, Slow Clap, Crashing through a window, 
Bilingualism. Male rear nudity. Kick to the crotch. Kick to the face. Kick to the chest. Punch to the chest. Punch to the ribs. Punched in the face. Or reference to the Wizard of Oz. And so, so many more. I seriously love it. Anyway, moving on. The last little bit of pop culture news from this week in 1991 was the January 7th television premiere of a brand new show that served as an after-party of sorts to the Arsenio Hall show, which had just begun its third year on the air. The Party Machine with Nia Peoples. If you were even remotely into pop, hip-hop, R&B, New Jack Swing, or club music, you probably loved this show. I certainly did. And I remember having kind of a mega crush on its host, actress and singer Nia Peoples. I had the tremendous pleasure this past week of hopping on a Zoom call with Nia to talk about the show, her long and successful career before and after the show, and, well, honestly, a lot of other really good stuff. In all honesty, this is one of my favorite conversations I've ever gotten to have on this show, and I'm very excited to share it with you now. So here's my chat with pop culture icon, Nia Peoples. Nia Peoples, thank you so much for being on 30 Pop today. It's such a joy to have you. It's my pleasure to be here. So 30 years ago this week was the television premiere of The Party Machine with Nia Peoples, a show that was executive produced by Arsenio Hall, who was at the peak of his career at that point, and you hosting the show. Tell me about how this show came about. I know you had done some stuff with like MTV, you had been on Fame, you were you were a known entity in the music and television space, but how did this show specifically come about? Well, yeah, this is um it, he actually approached me. And the reason was cuz Arsenio was, you know, he was at the top of his game when yeah. this was happening. And so ultimately, I think what happened was when he renegotiated his deal, they gave him the position right after his show like the half hour after his show, that was part of his negotiation for re-upping the Arsenio Hall show. And he was given permission to do whatever he wanted. So he reached out to me and I sat with him and this is, <laughs> this is part of, I mean, if you look back at everything I've done in my career, you're like, well, why did she do this? Or why did she do that? And what did this, sometimes I just go, oh, well, how can I help you? And with this show, he came to me and he wanted to do something, but he didn't really know what he wanted to do. Hmm. So it was really an interesting, I knew he wanted music. And at first we talked about having it kind of be like an unplugged thing where it would be two or three nights a week, like maybe a Friday night and a Saturday night, maybe a Sunday, but definitely Friday, Saturday night and live music. Mm -hmm. And I went, okay, that sounds really cool. Let's do that. And as we rolled into it, once the contracts were signed, we rolled into it. It turned into six nights a week, all pre-record. And I was like, wait, wait, <laughs> this is a different animal. And I remember, you know, getting into it. And at one point it had to have been just a handful of weeks before we launched having a meeting with Paramount and everybody and the director going, okay, we need to get we need to get our heads wrapped around what the show really is. Because really all they had was Nia and they had music. And it was just, okay, that's awesome. But what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's how the party machine was born. It was just everybody, okay, what is this thing really? And I remember shooting the promo. If you can find the promo anywhere, you'll see me talking it up. And, and it's like, I'm saying stuff like, you know, it's just about music and, you know, people come together and 
and they're just there's music. I was a hula dancer. <laughs> there's music. We want to keep on the edge and do what we we want to go with what we feel. There's dancing. It's more hanging out and playing. There's a new spirit in the nighttime. Yeah, it's a showcase for anybody that's out there right now that's happening. You get everybody from rock and roll to rap. Come join the crowd with Nia Peoples and the hot rhythm of the streets. We want to come out and party and play. The Party Machine. Weeknights at midnight on TV 44. There's really no specific outlay of what the show was really going to be because wow. we really hadn't formed it. And so it was kind of miraculous that it turned into this thing because Arsenio, I think Arsenio just wanted to work with me. I mean, looking back on it, I didn't recognize then, but looking back on it, I think he just recognized that there was some kind of relationship that I had to audience that was kind of kind and more open and fun mm. than running down one path or the other. There's something about who I've been in the psyche of fans that kind of opens many, many doors. And so I think that's what it was with the talent and the the way he put it, it was like, you, you can invite anybody in. And so that's, I think he was sold more on that without really having fully formed what the show itself was. And so it was kind of a like, well, we rolled into it and that's what it became. <laughs> so what was the production schedule like to be pre-recorded for six nights a week? How many episodes were you recording in a day? We shot three episodes on Saturday and three episodes on Sunday. My and it was like gosh. pumping them out, pumping them out, pumping them out, the clothes, the words, the people, because all of the people that are dancing had to have changes as well. Okay. So, so that, that was one of the questions I had is how did people land those spots? Was this like a wait outside and, you know, there's like a line out the door that people just are just wanting to come in and dance? Yep. They just wanted to come and in And they would come on dance. for three episodes. Yep. All day long. And they would get fed like Kentucky Fried Chicken. Nice. <laughs> It was their chance to get on the show and just be seen. I bet it was so much fun. For them, it was. And for me, it was too, because, you know, I kind of mingled with them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, if you're hosting something, you're kind of separate from them. You're on a stage, the people are out there. But there was there, we were all stuck in the studio. And sometimes it got hot. Sometimes it got too cold. No one was eating. And we were like, you know, at one point, I was just one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, except that you had access, I would assume, to like, some of the biggest names in music at that point were coming in. Like how many of these folks did you know, or were there artists that came in that were intimidating even to you? Oh, I was definitely starstruck. And this is so two years before that I had done another music show called top of the pops. Okay. And it, top of the pops is the longest running music show in history. Like in, wow. in Europe, you have to do that. And so they had some really big names too. So I might, I'm kind of confusing who was on where, but with the party machine, it was more club. It was more that kind of a thing. It was more the hip hop world. It was mm -hmm. it was that kind of a thing. And many of us had run into each other on the circuit when we were promoting our records. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different circuit. You know, Sting isn't going to be on the same circuit that I was on yeah. when I was promoting my club record. And so there was this kind of feel like, like a commonality, you know, mm. we're all kind of in this doing it together. Yeah. Peers. I remember. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was the fun of it. I remember one of one of my most memorable interviews for me was Lisa Fisher. Okay. And she is just to me the most magical vocalist ever. And she actually had sung backup on my song in that's the first time I met her and she was like a very famous background singer in New York and 
the engineers and all the, the all the people at the studio would like crowd in just to soak up some of her essence and to hear wow. her voice. And so when she released her single, I got to interview her and it made me so happy because the experience is that many of these people who sing backup sing circles around those of us who are out front. Hmm. I mean, it's just the basic truth. It's not true in all cases, but there, I don't know what it is there. There's actually a documentary called 20 feet from stardom. Hmm. And that clip of me interviewing her is actually in that because it's a, it's a documentary about all the famous background singers who never made it up front. And so this was, for me, it was such a privilege and an honor to interview her because she's astounding as an artist and as a soul. She's just a beautiful, beautiful person. Wow. So that to me was one of the biggest reasons I existed was to be able to help launch this career that deserved to be launched. So I'm curious, the show ran throughout 1991 and this was when, so one of the things we've just finished covering on 30 Pop was it was like 22 straight weeks or something of MC Hammer being at the very top of the charts. He, number one album for basically all of 1990, almost yeah. half at least. And I know he was a guest on the show at some point. Tell me about that. So this, you would have had him just between Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him and Too Legit. What was it like to have him sort of in that particular moment of his career? Well, for me, it was still the feeling of we're all just doing this mm -hmm. because I think most people don't understand when you experience fame at any level, you, you almost don't know what's going on because your head is down and you're working your ass off. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the truth. You are working your ass off, flying all over the place and you're three cities in a day, you're, you're just promoting the heck out of everything. So it's kind of like the work is the work is the work. Mm -hmm. And you're famous and you're charting and you're aware of that, but you still have to work. It's a grind. And so it was more of a like, oh my God, congratulations, because we're all in this together. Yeah. At least for me. For other people, it's not always the same thing. But to me, it was an acknowledgement of how hard we're working and we're we're keeping on, keeping on. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. It was supportive to me. Man, I love that. That's just not what you expect to hear. That's not the stories you usually hear about any part of the entertainment industry. So I love that. Well, and I think you're right. I think for a lot of people, it's competitive and people can kind of get distracted. But the truth of the matter is there's a lot of grind that goes on. Yeah. And that for me, I was a worker, you know, that I wasn't a big party girl. And there was, I mean, I was on a hit TV show in the eighties and never saw cocaine. So that was like whoop, right over my head and it was flying around everywhere. So it wasn't until later where I looked back and realized, Oh my God, all this stuff was going on. I was so focused on the work, you know, that it, you know, and with the party machine, I had a child, I was married and had a child. So wow. it was like, what time I had, I had my family. So, yeah. So you mentioned the show in the eighties. So you were on fame. You came in at season four. I assume that's the show that you're referring to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this until looking this week that you were on, you came on to the show the same time as Janet Jackson, who also at this point mm -hmm. in 1991 was, I mean, crushing it. So she had been, you know, yeah. I think she had had eight number one singles over the course of that year. I'm curious what that was like for you. So you're just being so intimately connected to some of the most successful people in the entertainment world at that point. Mm -hmm. What was your experience with that? Was there like a friendship there? Or Janet was very, I mean, I'll just be really honest here. Janet was very closed off. 
But I can understand why. At the time she started fame, she was 19 years old. She was famous for her last name Mm -hmm. more than for anything, which carries a load of weight. It just does. I mean, I remember when they told me I got fame and they said, you know, the other new kids are Jesse Borrego and Janet Jackson. I didn't know there was even a Janet in that Jackson family. I mean, and then I remember going to New York to film and the fans that were lined up everywhere out, like outside her bedroom, her, they found out what room she was in. I was like, who is this person? <laughs> I didn't, That's unbelievable. I didn't know that she had been on any other show. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't. And then I just went, oh, but there was so much pressure on here, her just massive amounts of pressure all the way around. She was only 19. She had just married DeBarge, James. And so she was very, always nice, but very, very quiet and very closed off and surrounded herself with the dancers to keep herself safe. Hmm. So when she released Control, I was absolutely thrilled for her because yeah. I felt like, oh my, she kind of just made her own statement and did her own thing. And and she was always nice. I mean, I I think that year, it was the end of my first year, I actually performed on the Golden Globes that year. Wow. I did When Doves Cry. It was oh, nominated. Amazing. And so I performed that and I she loaned me something for my shoes or something. <laughs> so, I mean, she was kind, but very, very kind of closed off. And I was totally thrilled when she released that album because it was, she found her voice. Of course, yeah. After having been under so much pressure. Well, and even more so with Rhythm Nation, which was late 89, early 90. I mean, that album was just such a statement of like, right. I am That's not right. That's right. just my brother's sister. You know, I am, I mean, she is a bona fide superstar herself. She's incredible. Absolutely. I think that's amazing. You've also had a really wonderful career since 1991. I'd love to talk about that some. So you've become an author, a speaker. You've been on more very, very successful shows. Tell folks about what you've done over the last 30 years. I don't know. I've just always been one of those people that just kept moving forward. And I was born very shy and never wanted to be in front of people. So performing was almost like this cocoon that I was in that allowed me to express myself through a character, you know, Mm. playing someone else gave me permission to experience things that I would never have permitted myself to experience, Mm. if you will. And it allowed me to um, explore the psyches of other people and find that line of compassion in it. But looking back, I realized, Hey, wait a minute. I mean, I've been on a hit TV series as a regular every decade, since oh, fame. that's amazing. Except with Pretty Little Liars was the last one. And I was signed as a regular and then reduced, you know, the parents got reduced to right. recurring roles. But at that time in my life, it was perfect. I just said, I never want to be a regular on a TV series again, because people don't realize it's 12, 15 hour days. A 12 wow. hour day is a minimum working day. Wow. So the, you know, it was fame. It was Walker, Texas Ranger. It was, uh, which was the number one Saturday night show. I'm in Texas. So I remember. Yeah. There was, which was an amazing experience for me. It was young and the restless, which was the number one soap opera. That was an interesting experience for me coming from nighttime television and then pretty little liars. And then in between that, I did all these huge pilots or series that went for three years or whatever. And when I look back, I went, wow, for some reason I was able to just book a series or a pilot every year I went up for one. And that's not really usual. That's sort of the coveted thing is to get that. And I think part of it was I was kind of bridging the gap into where we've moved on a racial level. So like at the time when I started, they had no place for me because I'm a mixed race. 
I'm kind of an exotic girl next door. I'm all over the place. So there was no role written for me. There were, are you black? Are you white? Are you Mexican? Are you Chinese? What are you, you know? And I was none of it and I was all of it. Yeah. And so I think what happened was because there was nothing specifically written and I was so, <laughs> the way I put it is, I was so non-offensive. <laughs> they were like, yeah, this is interesting. <laughs> and I'm good at what I do. I mean, I studied my ass off of for this course, stuff. I really yeah. did. And I think it just caught them by surprise because I would say that most of the roles I got, I was second in position or I was like, oh my God, she's so good. We just don't know where to put her. Hmm. And then they would hire somebody for the role and it's just not quite there. And they would call me in and just go, why didn't we hire you to begin with? And this is such an important lesson. This is something that I teach anytime that I, that I work with people who want to be in the entertainment business or in any kind of business is that there is a uniqueness that is you, that is only you. You are a one of a kind, a one and only. There's never been anybody that's been you and there never will be anyone that's been you. And because of that, you're the only one who can bring you forward. And just because they don't call it out, they don't describe you, doesn't mean you can't grow their understanding of what that character is. That's amazing. And I think that that's, I was just uniquely positioned in time to be that person that just kind of non-aggressively started opening doors for all kinds of races. Did you feel any pressure with that? Like I think about how today, 30 years later, thankfully, we're starting to see representation valued more in all aspects of the entertainment industry. So television in the music world, you know, kind of everywhere, representation is becoming increasingly visible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's wonderful. But it was certainly not the case then. You existed in a time when most of the bodies that were on television were white. Arsenio was breaking ground with yeah. his show and you were following him and partnering in that. I'm curious if you were conscious of that at the time. Was there any pressure on you for that? I was mildly conscious and aware that there was no place for me. Hmm. Just because they did, it was obvious. They were like, well, who are you? What are you? And my thing was, I don't know. I can't define myself. When you, when you can define me, would you let me know? And I just ignored it because I'm like, well, I'm here. I can't change myself into whatever race or color or height or weight that you desire. So I'm, my job is just to bring forth the truth of who I am. Gosh, that's so good. That, I feel like I'm that was it. learning that now 30 years later. I'm just now learning yeah. how to do that myself. So yeah. I think that's amazing. There's one more thing I want to ask you about real quick. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I was reading about like a three-year walkabout that you took a few yeah. years ago, I guess. Can you yeah. tell me well, more about I that? Well, I mean, it's, it continues actually now. That yeah. was five, it's five years now. Wow. So, so I mean, I've, I've always been really focused in my life. And the reason that I've been really focused is because I was really shy. Mm. I mean, I was so shy when I was little. My parents were just worried that I would never survive in the world because mm. I was such an empath. I would look out and I would see people not being nice to each other and I would just start weeping. Why aren't they nice to each other? Like I could feel it. And so they decided that they'd have to push me into something to make me face this. And I mean, I was that kid that couldn't even play P.E., because if that meant having to get up to bat or something, that meant everybody was going to be looking at me. I'd be the kid in the bathroom, like with my head over the toilet bowl, getting ready to throw up. I was wow. that shy and that nervous. So my parents just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And I finally relented and just realized that it was easier for me to become an overachiever because there was approval with that. 
they would approve of my yeah. achieving things, but not backing up because I was afraid or shy. Hmm. So rather than fighting my way back into the closet to hide, I just pushed forward with everything. And because of that, I learned how to really, really focus. And I became an overachiever. That was where I hid in my overachievement. And that's how I moved through everything. So I, I learned how to achieve all these things, but I always noticed that there was this low grade dissatisfaction with anything I achieved. Hmm. Like I would get the, I would make the achievement. Yay. And then it was just like, Oh, now I'm only going to feel good if I do it bigger and better next time. Hmm. Like for me personally, it wasn't about how it was viewed. It was me personally. Can I do this bigger, better, faster, smarter? And so when my youngest child went off to college a year early and my fourth marriage broke up and I had was sitting there and I thought, okay, wow. Okay. For the first time in your life, you're alone and you get to choose what you want to do. What do you want to do? You know, you have no kids to take care of. You have no, whatever, what do you want? And I couldn't answer the question. Hmm. Like, what do you want, Mia? I couldn't answer the question. And I walked to the beach and I wept. I just cried. I wept and wept and wept because I knew if I couldn't put my finger on what I wanted, I didn't know who I was Hmm. because I have this theory that, you know, your soul speaks through your heart and its language is deep driving desire. And if I couldn't get back in touch with that, I was just doomed to be making long lists of things to do for other people or for things I thought I was supposed to be doing. Where was my soul calling me to really step? And so I let everything go. I gave most everything away and I sold my house and I just started moving on inspiration. I just started wandering with the only goal being to listen to that voice of inspiration and move on it. It could have been a big thing like, wow, I really want to go to Israel. Or it could be something really small like, hmm, yeah, I'd like a, a piece of chocolate right now. Every Anything, like start to retrain my overachieving patterns to patterns of listening to the voice inside. And that's what that journey has been all about, unwinding all the things that you think you want, because there's a difference between what you really deeply want and what you're after. And when I look back, I just go, oh, God, there's so many days that I were filled with things I was after that had nothing to do with what I deeply desired. And that's that's a waste of time. That's a waste of my space on this planet, because the greatest thing I have to add to this planet is the truth of who I am. And the expression of that beautiful soul that is love. I mean, we all really are. Our nature is the frequency of love. That's our nature. Hmm. And when we can move and express out of that place, wow, we are adding our light to the world the way that we're meant to. Not everybody is meant to be the president of the United States or meant to be a great speaker or a great author or someone who's going to change the world at that level. But every little piece counts. Someone was Martin Luther King's mother. You don't think that position was important? So this was what I really recognized. And so I set out to do that. And every day I learned more and more who I am. And she's beautiful. And she's messy. And she's not very sensible sometimes. She can be sensitive, really, really super sensitive and feel things. You know, I woke up yesterday morning just weeping 
and I'm thinking, what am I feeling right now? And I realized so much of what I was feeling was the sadness of the upturning of the world right now. Mm -hmm. And it isn't a sadness that the world is changing because on top of that, there is this joy that it is changing because it's so messed up. But it's the sadness of the realization of how ugly it has been underneath. Hmm. The ugly is just coming up. And you, you know, if you're going to clean a room, you got to move your carpet and see you want to clean and make sure there's no dirt. You got to yeah, look up and be true. willing to see the dirt that's there. And that's what we're being faced with today. These systems that we're in are broken. They're not sustainable. They're not kind. They're born of fear. They're not born of love. And the sadness I was feeling was just the transitioning, like the recognition of how ugly it has been. Yeah. And I know deeply that the job is to look at that ugliness and be willing to transmute it within myself. That's amazing. But I had to move through it. I do want to say The Party Machine was a really fun show. You are clearly a very special person. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to get to talk to you and to get to talk to you about more than just pop culture. So thank you so much for just kind of sharing, bringing your whole self to this interview. I think that's beautiful. And you are always invited on 30 Pop. Anytime you want to be on, just let me know. I'll well, thank you for that. I, and, you, so. and thanks for doing it because I, you know, I'm sitting here and I, I mean, your listeners can't see this, but I'm doing this through Zoom so I can see your guitars and yeah. I can see and I'm like, oh my God, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's amazing to me. And it's always so inspirational for me to see anyone stepping up and out on their own inspiration Yeah, because the world, I mean, even, you know, me at my age and with all my experience and with my resume and the gravitas that that brings and everything I've experienced, I still have those moments of what are you doing? Yeah. You know, what are you doing? Because we're constantly evolving. So what's bringing me joy and expression today may not be what it is tomorrow. And it takes courage to face that and to release like the egoic story we tell that that's who we are. That takes mm. a lot of courage. So thank you because you've totally inspired me today. Absolutely. One last question. Of the many roles you've had over the years in all of the different industries and just areas of life, what would you say has been the most vital for you? Ooh, vital. Well, I think it depends. I mean, I think what I'm doing right now is the most vital. Hmm without a doubt, especially with the children's book and all the work that's naturally occurring with that. But fame was really a turning point for me because there are just these times where the roles that you play match who you are in your life. Hmm. And so that was one of those times. And it was the first big show for me that opened up this whole world and launched everything and opened up a bunch of doors for me. But it met me where I was. I was playing a student at the High School of Performing Arts who wanted to get on the big stage. And that's who I was at that mm. point. And so there's magic when that happens. So I would say now for sure. And fame. That's amazing. I love it. Nia, thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again, hopefully in the future. And uh, again, just thanks so much for being a part of the episode today. It's absolutely my pleasure. And don't hesitate to reach out. All right. We'll see you next time. <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye. I genuinely loved getting to talk to Nia and could have never anticipated the direction our conversation would go. I do truly hope to have her back on regularly. She had such an amazing front row seat for so much of what was happening in pop culture in the late 80s and early 90s, and especially in 1991. Huge thanks to Nia for being a part of 30 Pop and for a really lovely conversation. Such a treat. 
And as always, thanks to you for listening, subscribing, rating, and reviewing 30 Pop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, would you do me a favor? Would you share it with a friend or two? Or perhaps tag us on social media? I'm working really hard to see the audience for this show grow in 2021, and that will only happen with the help of folks like you. Either way, I'll be back again next week with more pop culture nostalgia, and as always, you're invited to join me. Until then, I'll leave you with the wisdom of the great ski school philosopher, Dave Marshall. It's not how far you go, it's how go you far. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. <laughs>